0: Good morning, good to see someone here this evening. I'm so thankful to be here and honored to be invited here to spend time with all of you good folks. I'm very thankful for the tremendously wonderful time I had at the Hamiltons last night, there they are, and the, the hospitality there. And Kenny got up this morning and made breakfast for all of us. And uh, my son had, had bacon and eggs, and, and uh, Kenny come over and set a half a pie front of me. So I had a good, healthy breakfast. And I had the audacity to complain about the coffee when he it in front of me. And he said, I didn't make it. So anyway, uh, good to be here. I uh, so appreciate David's lesson. I'm thankful to Seth for making the announcements. I appreciate Rick for leading the singing. And I very much appreciate that prayer from Brother Glenn. And I appreciate all men who serve in the public services who lead uh, I'm always thankful for that, and I, I encourage young men to develop those skills and that talent because it's so helpful within the church and much appreciated. And I thank everyone for singing out, and I invite you to take your Bibles out and to open them up. I generally use the New King James Version, so if it reads different from yours, that's why. Follow along with the lesson. Follow the noble example of those in Acts seventeen eleven 11, and search the Scripture to find out whether these things are so. If, after careful examination, you believe that I've taught the truth this morning, I exhort you to take those truths and apply them to your life, teach them to others, so that we may be faithful servants of the Lord. (laughs) On the other hand, if you feel that I've taught error in any way, I certainly do not want to teach error. Don't go out and talk about me, but come talk to me. Let's study that together. Try to come to the right conclusion based upon the Word of God. In 2008, uh, I went through a very pleasurable experience of reading researching, studying, and writing sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And those studies changed my thinking in some things, and they smoothed the edges out on some other things, and I profited a great deal from reading and studying the Sermon on the Mount. The title for our lesson this morning will be When the Sun Goes Down. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is mapping out a required way of life in his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23, The Bible says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their kingdoms, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then he goes right into the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is dealing with things regarding how to live properly in the kingdom. Don't read the Sermon on the Mount and think, Well, that's old and that's for, no, this is for us today. And Jesus' teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount is antithetical. He is both setting forth new principles, different from the law of Moses, while at the same time exposing the Pharisaical interpretation of the law of Moses. And so he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, beginning, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment." But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly I say to you, you will by no means get out of there, Till you have paid the last penny. The Jewish teachers had twisted the law of Moses into teaching that only outward actions were condemned. This is one of the many twists. And Jesus corrected this by showing that one can sin with his heart, one can sin with his thoughts. And certainly the outward acts of murder and adultery would bring on punishment from the law of the land. But the inward thoughts were just as sinful when it comes to God's perspective. And what's more, they often lead to the outward action. And so in relation to anger this morning, as we think about our title, when the sun goes down, there are three truths that I want us to try to remember And in the first place, I want us to see, and there's our text here, an unwarranted wrath. Now in verse 22 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause. Without a cause. Now scholars differ as to whether the the words without a cause should be included or not. The weight is heavily in favor of them being there, but whether those words are included or not, there is truth in the statement. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. Ephesians 4:26, again, be angry and do not sin. So it is possible to be angry and not sin. Now, sin and sinful behavior should anger any child of God. Perhaps sin runs so rampant among us because we're not angry enough about it. Our society keeps trying to program us to be tolerant, to be accepting, and that can infect our thinking when it comes to spiritual matters. Jesus did not tolerate sin. I don't care how many memes you see of him leading a gay parade. Jesus never tolerated sin. Jesus always condemns sin. And God always condemns sin. And he does so because he's not some mean old grout that just wants to send people to hell. He does so because he loves the souls of every individual. And because of that love, the sin angers him to the point of trying to convince them that they are wrong and that they need to repent so that they could go to heaven instead of being condemned eternally. And that's the way we should be. Sin should anger us. The Bible says that Christians should walk just as Jesus walked. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. And Jesus certainly walked this earth at times displaying great anger towards sinful behavior and hypocrisy. The classic example is John chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, which is John's record of Jesus cleansing the temple and how he made the uh, the whip of cords, and he went in and he overturned those money changers' table. We can go to Matthew 23 and read that scathing rebuke that he issued to the religious leaders of his day. Eight times in that chapter, Jesus said to those people, Woe to you, hypocrites! The Bible often speaks of God's anger and wrath. The psalmist said in Psalm 90, verse 11, Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Isaiah 5, 25, Therefore the anger of the Lord is aroused against His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. There are, in fact, more than 120 references in the Bible to God's anger and wrath. And so there is righteous indignation, but there is also unwarranted wrath, and this is condemned. The Greek word in Ephesians 4, 26 for anger is the same word Jesus used here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. And so it is possible to have this anger without sinning, but then it is certainly possible to sin with this anger and to let the sun go down on your wrath. Back in 2008, I wrote and preached a sermon on anger, in which I made three points in which anger can be sinful. Number one, the reason we're angry can make anger sinful. Maybe I get angry at somebody because they, they made a mistake or had an accident. They couldn't help it. And I fly off the handle. This happens sometimes when you have children. And they accidentally drop a glass. They couldn't. It was an accident. We get all over them. I'm preaching with a Bible in one hand and a mirror in the other here, because I certainly have not mastered my emotions when it comes to anger, and I've got a lot of work to do. I want you to understand that. But not only can the reason for our anger make anger sinful, but the rapidity of our anger can make our anger sinful. Maybe I'm just like a shotgun. I'm always ready to go off. Maybe people around me think that, you know, around Mike, we need to tiptoe like walking on eggshells because just anything can set him off, right? Ecclesiastes 7, 9. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. 1 Corinthians 13:5, love is not easily provoked. Proverbs 14, 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of wicked intentions is hated. Proverbs 16, 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. But not only can the reason for our anger make it sinful and the rapidity of our anger, but our reaction to our anger can make that anger sinful. Proverbs thirty thirty three, For as the churning of milk produces butter and the wringing ring, of, no, of the nose produces blood, So the forcing of wrath produces strife. Anger, as you look down through uh, human history and modern times, anger has led, in countless cases, to the cruelest of sins. Husband beating the wife. Parent abusing the child. Brawls, fights, stabbings, marital unfaithfulness. Name-calling, murder, and the list goes on. Somebody said years ago that anger is only one letter short of danger. And uncontrolled anger is a hard master. And this is something that we need to pray often about. But in thinking about when the sun goes down, I want us to think not only about unwarranted wrath, But I want us to think about unloving words. Go back to our text, Matthew chapter 5, and let's read on. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Raka. Bonehead, empty head. You fool. Do those sound like loving words? Anger can lead to unloving words. You know, many want to see in these verses different levels of punishment in hell. But that's not really Jesus' point here. I think he's focusing mainly on the judgment from the local court. Obviously that's mentioned, the council, the Sanhedrin. He mentions Gehenna fire. That's the valley of Hinnom just south of Jerusalem. Where at one time the children of Israel would sacrifice their children to false gods until the king put a stop to it. In Jesus' day, the valley of Hinnom was used as a garbage dump or a landfill. Bodies of killed criminals often were taken there and burned. There always seemed to be an endless, ever burning fire and stench that arose from that place. You know, D.A. Carson addresses this point very eloquently in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, in relation to these bad names being a gradation, you know, it's bad if you say, Rock of a boy, don't you say, you fool. You know, people view that as some kind of gradation there. And so he, sa- he talks about that. And he said that, that it's more sinful, this idea that it's more sinful to call a man a fool than it is to call a man raka. And I agree with him. It's difficult to believe that Jesus is stooping to such, I don't know the word, but he's stupid here it seems to me. I mean, would he resort to such hair-splitting distinctions between raka and you fool? And and could either of these phrases be meaningfully spit out without anger? Jesus is simply multiplying examples here to drive the lesson home. He is a preacher preaching a sermon who makes his point, and then he makes his hearers feel the weight of his point by compounding illustrations. Would it be acceptable for children to call someone every name in the book? As long as we don't say you fool. I remember when I was growing up as a kid. I used to think like that. I'd call you a sissy. I can call you a, a, a heathen. I can call you stupid. I couldn't do it with my parents around. As long as I don't call you a fool, right? Oh, that was the unpardonable sin. If I called Derek a bonehead, I would never do that to your face, Derek. But if I called Derek a bonehead, you know, that's bad, but I'm okay. But if I call you a fool, lightning's going to strike me, right? I just don't believe that's Jesus' point here. Jesus confronts his audience, and he would say, You think yourselves far removed, morally speaking, from murderers. Have you not hated? Have you never, in a moment of anger and weakness, wished someone were dead or that perhaps a bad thing would happen to them? Have you not frequently stooped to the use of contempt, even to the point of character assassination, regardless of what words you use to disparage your brother? Even if you left the word fool out to run him in the ground? You know, in James 3, verse 10, the Bible says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. All such vilifying anger, anger lies at the root of murder, or at least hateful acts. And one who practices these things is not one bit less a sinner than the actual Murderer, as far as God is concerned. That's Jesus' point here. And the only difference in punishment is that in this life, under civil government, the punishment is greater for the murderer than for the name-caller or the gossip or the slanderer. If I call somebody names... I'm not likely to have a police officer come knocking on my door. But if I murder somebody, it's a different story, right? But in eternity, all will bear the weight of the same eternal punishment and the same Gehenna hell. Whether my heart's filled with hatred and I never act on it or the person that acts on it. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. These people seem to think that as long as I don't physically do this, it's okay for me to have these thoughts or even to call you names. As long as I don't harm you physically. And Jesus would step in and answer that and address that. And oh, how we need to take encouragement from this. And from the song that we sometimes sing, angry words, oh, let them never from the tongue unbridled slip." I like those words. Rick asked me if I had any songs you want to sing. I said, well, there's one that talks about the sermon. I don't really like that song. I told him what it was. He said, I don't really like that song either. So he, we agreed he wouldn't lead it. But I do like those words, that phrase. But Jesus goes deeper than that here. He teaches us not to harbor anger in our hearts, which leads to angry words, and in extreme cases, to hateful acts, including The act of murder. In Romans 1, 29 to 30, Paul addresses whisperers and backbiters. Many times in the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom writings, we find that we should not slander, we should not gossip, we should not whisper, we should not backbite. And in Romans 1, God had given up on that society and turned his back away from them. One of the reasons is because they were whisperers and they were backbiters. But if you can erase all of the hate out of your heart, then you can overcome those thoughts. And we would stop sitting in our living rooms and running our brother in the ground. But here's the third thing I want us to see. And thinking about when the sun goes down. Not only is there unwarranted wrath. Not only are there unloving words. But there is unacceptable worship. Go back to our text. Matthew 5 verse 23. Jesus says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar. And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there. Before the altar and go your way. First. Be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now what Jesus is really doing here, he's teaching the lesson of urgency. He's trying to stress the fact that when when you have said or done anything that might be wrongful or that has hurt your brother, there is a great sense of urgency To get that straightened out as soon as possible. And so he uses this illustration. This is so urgent that even if you've come to worship God. And you remember there's something I need. You get that thing cleared up. That is teaching the urgency of the matter. This is serious. To have that kind of thing lingering between you and a brother. Or between you and a sister. And he lays upon the Christian a responsibility that we dread as bad as any other. To actually humble ourselves to the point of admitting that we were wrong. And approaching a brother or sister we have hurt and apologizing to them. And then taking whatever steps necessary to right the wrong. Is that easy to anybody? To come to a face and to look at that face and say, I was wrong, and I'm sorry. But oh, how important this is. Families are at odds with each other because of a bitter word spoken years ago. Brothers and sisters are at odds at each other because of a hasty letter written years ago. Brethren are still giving one another the cold shoulder because of an age-old act. That takes love for one another, and we must express this love in working out our differences with each other. Jesus gives two examples to drive home this point. Your worship is hindered. It can affect our worship. When those kind of things are going on within a church and imprisonment is possible. Talks about agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him lest your a- adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Don't mess what he's saying here. When you go into prison, you don't get to have a job and make money to pay off the debt. And so the idea is that once you get cast into prison, You will always be there. There will never be a release because your debt has to be fully paid. Maybe you've got a rich friend somewhere to take care of it, but that's not what Jesus' point is here. Jesus is pointing to the idea of never-ending imprisonment or really he's using this as a figure for eternal punishment. That's the real lesson. And Jesus is saying that all disputes should be addressed and taken care of without delay. And that to fail to do this has dire consequences. You know, this hits on the root of the cause. And we certainly need to mention one of the remedies. And Paul gives one of those remedies in Romans chapter 12. Verse 10, he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor given preference to one another. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Ouch. <laughs> that one hurts to read. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And Peter would say in 1 Peter 3.11, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now Jesus only a few verses earlier in Matthew 5 had said, blessed are the peacemakers. And we're seeking peace and pursuing it. When we recognize and realize that we have done or said something wrong or hurtful to our brother and sister, and we turn around and we go to them and we do whatever it takes to make that right, no matter how hard it is. That's being a peacemaker. And that is seeking peace and pursuing it. And so Jesus teaches here a lesson. Compared with what Paul wrote, reflecting back to what God told Cain all those years ago, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, don't let this day end. Don't even go to bed tonight until you've gone and tried to straighten this thing out. That's how urgent it is. Don't let another day pass. Because when the sun goes down, there is unwarranted wrath. When the sun goes down, there are unloving words. And ultimately, when the sun goes down, that will result in unacceptable worship. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we so humbly thank you for Jesus, our Lord, and your Son, who suffered so greatly at Calvary for our sins. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had this morning to come together as your people and to worship your worship and glorify your name and to edify one another and we pray that all things that have been said and that will be said will glorify you and that we'll all leave here this morning stronger than we were before we left. Be with us and help us to be faithful unto death so that we may finally have our crown of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you take your song books and turn to the number that has been selected In just a few moments Rick will lead us in that song. Um. On the screen behind me, you can call this God's plan of salvation or the steps of salvation. It doesn't matter. In the great scheme of redemption, there are two parts. There's God's part, and then there's man's part. Well, in a nutshell, God the Father sent the Son. The Son died on the cross, and the Holy Spirit inspired men to write it all down to tell us about it. Now, God did all that to make salvation available, not because he looked down and thought that man had deserved it, but he did all that because he loved us. We were very undeserving of that. But when he did that, he put the ball in our court, so to speak. Now, we must respond to that. And the Bible tells us exactly how to respond. And you'll find all this just right there in Acts chapter 2. You know, uh, the the twelve, Peter with the 12 stood up and preached to them, and then at the end of the sermon, Luke said, when they heard these things, uh, they were cut to the heart and asked men and brethren what shall do. So you, you must hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. God's not going to zap it miraculously into your heart. Romans 10, 17. But then after hearing, you must believe. And the, the fact that they were cut to the heart and asked what they needed to do indicated belief. In John eight twenty four. Jesus said, Unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. But after hearing and believing, you need to be willing to repent, to change your life. And that's in verse 38. In response to their question, Peter said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And that's that act that finally puts you into Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27, where salvation is, as Dave mentioned this morning from uh, 2 Timothy there. <laughs> salvation is in Christ. So we must be baptized. To have our sins washed away, Acts 22:16, 16, by the blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, so that we may be saved, Mark 16, verse 16. You've not done that. We urge you to do so. It's by God's grace that you have this opportunity. You're not promised another one. Don't live here with your soul in jeopardy. Become a Christian this very morning. Maybe you have done all these things, and as a Christian you have sinned. You've fallen short of this last part, remain faithful unto death, Revelation 2.10. Don't think that you've lost your opportunity or missed your chance. God wants you back. And if you study Acts 8.22 with this context, along with 1 John 1.7-9, we learn that if as Christians, when we sin, or even go back into a life of sin for a while, if we repent of that, and confess it, and ask God to forgive us, God will forgive us. And he uses this word in 1 John, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know how you felt when you first come out of that baptistry? When you was baptized? You know how you felt? You wouldn't be able to Describe it to me in words, would you? I wouldn't be able to describe how I felt. It felt so good, didn't it? But we can have that same feeling every day. Every day that we sin, right? And we beg God to forgive us. And he will cleanse, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here this morning, and you're subject to the invitation in any way, won't you please come forward now and have a seat in the front of you as we stand and sing.